Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to continue this week with verses 12 through 20 of chapter 1. Quick review. Uh, 1 Timothy is this letter from Paul to Timothy, and he's written, according to verse 3, calling Timothy to put a stop to this false teaching that is taking place at the church in Ephesus. And we talked some last week about how Timothy and Paul had this pre-existing relationship, of course, prior to this letter being written. So there are some things, uh, because of their common experience together, even in the church at Ephesus, there are some things that are not um, explicitly and overtly discussed, uh, like... uh, the positive teaching, the correct doctrine. Most of the time that's assumed. And then uh, the, other, the other huge piece is that the false teaching is not totally, clearly, systematically articulated. We get little hints here and there, and last week we tried to construct what that false teaching likely was. And what it is, or what it was, is something that is probably with Jewish Christian roots, it's been a misunderstanding of both the Jewish scriptures as well as some of Paul's previous teaching. There's some misunderstanding of the Old Testament law that we looked at at the end last week. Um, there's some elements of asceticism, and that is this, uh, the, this desire through um, some sort of rigor uh, to the body. Uh, specifically, it's abstaining from certain foods and then uh, abstaining from marriage through these sort of bodily practices that would somehow... Um, provide advanced spiritual growth. And so there are elements of that at work in it. Um, The result, and this is a huge point for Paul, the result of this false teaching uh, is vain discussion. Uh, There's conflict that has taken place. There's immorality that's going on amongst these leaders who may have been elders, which is the reason for so much in this letter regarding behavior in the household of God, as Timothy says in uh, chapter 3. Um, and, and at the end, at the end of the day, what it amounts to is a denial of the gospel. And what Paul says alternatively, and this is what we looked at last week, is that the true gospel always results in love. And so it's pretty fascinating to look at constantly in this letter how Paul maps on particular fruit to particular teaching. So the, the, the health of the teaching is going to show itself in the health or uh, sickness, rottenness of the fruit. So he says this false teaching results in all these problems. It results in vain discussions, in these conflicts, in this immorality, in this greed and love of money. Whereas the true gospel presents itself or results in a true love of God, love of neighbor, and then this conduct in the church. So that, that's quick review. Um, let, me, uh, let me read our passage for this week and then pray for us. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It's printed for you on your, on your handout. Everybody get a handout? Yes? Good. You notice it's one sheet this week? You're welcome. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to study it together. Lord, we pray that we would feel uh, the the gravity, the weight of these words, uh, that we would not read this and discuss it and study it as uh, disinterested observers, as if uh, we ourselves do not need to cling to Jesus and plead with him uh, to hold us fast and keep us from swerving and making shipwreck of our own faith. Help us to know our need this morning. And Lord, we pray that we would know the grace that is ours in Him. That we would be encouraged in this grace. And that uh, the grace that You've shown to Paul would be, as You intend it to be, an example to us. And that we would be transformed by it. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Okay, uh, a question to get us started uh, that that we'll feel throughout the whole of uh, of this passage is this. Um, What sort of dangers arise when the grace, specifically when the grace of the gospel is forgotten? What sort of dangers arise? Yeah, Paulette. Okay. Yeah, um, the legalism being this fundamental view of what God calls us to as being then the means by which our favor is earned or established with God, or even maintained. Maybe we are initially shown grace, but then we fall into this pattern of thinking, it's what I do. It's what Ryan talked about this morning with the hamster wheel of performance. Yeah. What else? Let me, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Making our need for success on something other than the fact that the Lord loves us more unconditionally loves us. Yes. Yeah, so, so Julia said a, a misplaced focus, trust, and even a misplaced uh, staking of our identity, that we could look to all these different things in our lives, our parenting, work, etc., uh, that would then be the, the way in which we would establish who we are and allow that to define us. Um, let me ask, let me try and do this in categories, because this is where I want to go. Um, how, how, does, uh, how does forgetting the grace of the gospel impact a community or a church? What happens in a church when the grace, that underlying foundational grace, is forgotten or lost sight of? Yeah, your relationships with other people uh, become a mess, um, because you, as Paige has said, you're not going to extend grace to other people. If, you, if, you have, if you're not operating on grace yourself, then it's unlikely you're going to show grace to others. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Grace. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so people become competitors at that point because, yeah, there, there's this envy or competition that's going on because you're, you're, it's all about your performance. Yeah, yeah, Dusty. Yeah, yeah, it kills love. Um, there's no way you could overlook offenses. It kills forgiveness. It, it, it kills the possibility of laying down your life for somebody else because it's still all about you. Yeah. Yeah, Beth. Yeah, yeah, and that's some of what's happening in this letter, right? That there's this immorality that arises because they have in some ways forgotten grace. And maybe uh, that, uh, a way that that would even get twisted even more is that everybody would probably be in, involved in some kind of sin, of course. But because grace is not prevalent in the community, you don't understand your grace before God, there's no way that you'd ever feel the sense of freedom to acknowledge that sin, to confess it to one another, to be open about it in any way because it's all about my performance and what I'm doing. Yeah. We've already heard one in terms of individuals that Paulette said. What, what else could this do for us as individuals if we lose sight of this grace? Yeah, Jenny. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and even to transition that into what it does to us as individuals, is that becomes exhausting, too. You're constantly putting up this, this front. Um, you can't be in real relationships with somebody. You get tired and exhausted from hiding. Um, and being the, the arbiter of morality uh, gets old after a while, right? Yes, yeah, yes. But ultimately, there is this question of what is my standing with God? Okay, so the last, last category here that I want to just deal with before we get into the actual passage. How does it impact ministry or how we would view others? How does forgetting the grace of the gospel impact ministry? Yeah, yeah, no motivation to share the gospel. In the end, it's about people getting their act together or not. And, and so you, you don't have that motive to share this message of grace because it's been lost. Yeah, yeah, Paige said, you say you become arrogant? You become narrow about who's in and who's out. Yeah, because it's all about what, what somebody's doing. Yeah, it also would make people arrogant towards others too, actually. Yeah, yeah, Danny. Yeah, yeah, where it is all about what it looks like on the outside and any means by which you could accomplish that or would be justified in the end. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I just want to put those categories out there for us to not forget this. I mean, these are, again, some of the most fundamental things about the Christian faith. Uh, and it becomes easy, especially if you've been in the faith for a while, to, to lose sight of how significant this underlying most basic foundation of grace is to the whole of our lives as a community, the whole of our lives as individuals, and then the whole of how we would view ministry and how we view other people. So this is totally foundational and fundamental. And what's emphasized here in this passage is this gracious message of the gospel. It's, it's Paul moving from this talk against the false teachers to what could seem like this kind of self-contained section 
uh, that's uh, uh, an autobiography. It's his own experience with the gospel. What's important for us to see, though, is that while the, the false teachers, they, they are mentioned in his charge to Timothy in 18 to 20, false teachers aren't mentioned here, but most commentators think this is intended to show, uh, to, to, to set Paul in opposite to what the false teachers are doing. In other words, they don't have this sort of grace at work in their lives. And what's happening in the church in Ephesus is that it's undercutting their life together as well. So here's our focus that's on your sheet. The true gospel is the gracious message of God saving sinners. And it must not be forgotten. So we'll look first here at God's grace to Paul in these ways. And then the second section is, uh, will be God's charge to Timothy. So first, God's grace to Paul. You've got two main sections here. Verses 12 through 14 and verses 15 through 16. Both sort of two cycles of Paul talking about this grace that comes to him from Jesus. The first is more specific to Paul and more autobiographical, but then the second broadens this out and makes these more general statements. But what's cool is this turning point in each of them is exactly the same. He says, But I received mercy. Both sections, I received mercy. So we see this uh, in, in, both of these, uh, in both of these statements about this grace. So first, as an opponent to the gospel or opponent of the gospel, look at 12 through 14. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So if you look back in your Bible to verse 11, if you've got it open, you see this, this um, Paul's statement of this message of the gospel being entrusted to him. So that this has been entrusted to him. And then, uh, and that's what he's talking about in verse 12, as Paul, or as God has given him strength, he judged him faithful. And that's an interesting question Based on what he's about to say, you might think, that sounds kind of weird. He judged me faithful like I had some kind of pre-existing ability or something where, Paul, uh, where, where God is really excited that Paul is now going to be on his team or something like that. That's not what's happening here. Um, and, and we know that because of what's coming in verse 13. As Paul gives a, a statement as to who he was prior to coming to know Jesus. Um, what, what's happening here is that Paul is deemed faithful because of the strength given to him by God. Because of this message entrusted to him, Paul then is judged faithful because of what God has done in him. And he's floored by that because of what he had been doing before, where he had come from. And that's what he says then in verse 13. Look at these three words that describe Paul before coming to know Christ. He was a blasphemer. We'll hear about this later on in the passage. He was a persecutor. And then it says he was an insolent opponent. He was an insolent opponent to God's purposes in the world. Here are some examples. I pulled these from Acts that speak of Paul. Some prior to his conversion, uh, but then also some of his own account in uh, Acts 22 and 26. Look at Acts 8 there. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And then as he's looking back on his life uh, prior to his conversion in Acts 22, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And then finally Acts 26. I myself, and this is, this is important uh, based on his statement in, that we'll see in a second here, that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Saying, I thought I was supposed to be doing this. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this is not the story of somebody who was sort of indifferent to God's purposes in the world, right? Paul is painting this picture of himself as being one who, he's going to say later, was the foremost of those who was opposing God. He's opposing God and God's redemptive purposes in the world. He was an opponent in the end. So what changed? Verse 13, But I received mercy. The mercy of God is what changed Paul. It wasn't, his, it wasn't Paul's actions towards God. It was God intervening and in, in, in showing this mercy to Paul. Okay, so what does he mean then by, this, uh, by acting ignorantly in unbelief? That kind of sounds like, well, it's all right, Paul. You didn't know what you were doing. Um, you figured it out now. We're glad you're not doing that anymore. Um, what, he, what he's talking about here is not justifying his sin, but acting in ignorance in that he thought he was on the side of God's people this whole time. And this is, this is the scary thing, is that he thought that he, he was the faithful Pharisee in the way in which he was opposing Jesus. He thought he was holding to the truth. He thought that he was the one who was actually faithful in all of this, when in the end he was actually opposing God's purposes here. And so um, it could be, and this is what uh, Gordon Fee says, he actually thinks Paul could be reflecting in the Old Testament on this distinction between um, these unwitting and purposeful sins. You could jot down Numbers 15, we're not going to look there, but Numbers 15 makes provision for these two types of sins, these, these, these that might be intentional and those that would be unwitting. Um, but the point is this, that the grace of the Lord overflowed to Jesus or to Paul. The grace of Jesus overflowed to Paul. And from that now is this faith and love uh, that has burst forth because of God's grace to him. Okay, a uh, question for us to, to talk some about here, how this might apply to us. Um, he takes this time to rehearse his life before coming to Jesus. He rehearses uh, the, who he used to be. And so the question for us then is, why might that be important? Why and in what way could it be important for us uh, to remember our former way of life? Yes. Yes. Yeah, to see the changes that have taken place. Yeah, to not lose sight of those things. Yeah, and then also to have the sense of deep gratitude um, to, to remember what it used to be when you stood outside of Christ and now what it means to be united to Him. Yeah, Brenda. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Dusty. Yes. Yeah. And that's really what Paul's doing here, is, is, is putting himself forward as this example of grace. And that would function certainly for Paul as an individual as well, to rehearse those things, to, to know this is where I've come from. We sing that hymn, Jesus I Come, and, and every phrase is out of my bondage, sorrow, and night. You fill in the blank with all these things, this from what, what I used to be to now what has occurred in me by the grace of God and the, my different standing with God now and how profound that is. Not to wallow in our past. That's not what Paul's doing here. Um, not to boast and to, to glory in his shame or something like that. It's all with the end of magnifying the grace of God and now him, him being put forward by God's uh, intention as an example of the gospel. And that's what he does in, in 15 and 16. If you look there, he moves this to, to something that's a bit more general, to what is now the first of four or five trustworthy statements. The, these, uh, this, this is a saying, that, or the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We'll see that formula used in other places, even in 1 Timothy. It's also in some other uh, pastoral letters. What he's saying here is that, that this saying is trustworthy. This is a, a faithful word and it's deserving of full acceptance. In other words, we are to believe this and take this on board. Really believe this. Um, it, it, it could also then be implied that this would be wide, it, that, that it should be accepted widely as well by many people. But probably primarily, it's this is something you need to hear and you need to believe this. You need to sink your roots into this. So what is that? It says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Okay, Christ's work summarized here. This is how Gordon Fee puts it. In, these, in the, this very concise, packed statement, you get Jesus' work for us here. Not the whole of it, but a great summary of it. First is the incarnation. He came into the world... This is part of this trustworthy saving and saying, Jesus came into the world, and what was the purpose? The purpose was redemption. He, he came to save sinners. And this is, uh, this is likely a, a term that's meant, that this term sinners is meant to universalize this. 
Um, that, 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 uh, this is coming from Gordon Fee as well. This was a term he says was used in Pharisaic Judaism that had previously uh, pertained to those who didn't keep the law as they should have and to Gentiles. Those were the sinners, those who did not keep the law as the Pharisees were. They weren't keeping the law in the way that they should, and then to Gentiles as well. This is now saying this salvation is open to any who would put their faith in Jesus. So it's, it's broadening it out in that way. All, both Jews and Gentiles, are sinners and need this grace. Okay, so a uh, very uh, interesting phrase that Paul uses then following that statement. Of whom... I am the foremost. What does he mean by this phrase? Um, there's one sense in which I think we could wrongly take it, and that would mean that Paul is saying, he now, I now, Paul, post-conversion, united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, sin more now than anybody else in the world. Right? That's not what he's saying here. The problem with that, I mean, there, there are a number of problems with it, but he, he says elsewhere in Acts... That, that he has lived before God in a way that, that, is, uh, that is admirable, and he can say that you should follow my example in this way. Not that he has it together in all these ways, but that he's not speaking uh, of his personal experience now as being the worst of all sinners currently. Okay? Um, I think sometimes this, this verse is quoted in that way, and I don't think that's what, what Paul's getting at here. What he's likely saying is, according to this context, he's speaking of his pre-conversion self. And he was the first or foremost, and this language gets picked up, um, gets picked up again in 16 there, that he as the foremost is going to be the one who is shown this grace and this favor. He was the foremost or the chief in that he was leading the charge against God's people. He was the one who was trying to undercut God's plan uh, of salvation because he was opposing the way. So, so this is how Paul would have viewed himself pre-conversion. Uh, that, that he would have been, that, that there was no way, if you had known him at that time, there's no way you would think, that guy's going to become a Christian. That guy's going to put his faith in Jesus. Uh, and so, in that sense, he is the foremost, and yet Jesus' grace extends to him, and that's what's changed. He says, I receive mercy, and so it's, again, God's mercy that makes the difference. He's meant to be an example, then, of the grace of Jesus. So here's some application for us, Okay. Um, this is where I was trying to get us to think in some of those categories because I think that this can apply to us. So application number one. One danger of forgetting this radical character of the grace of God, which is likely what the false teachers are doing to some degree, is that you view others as beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul would have been that. He would have been the one who you think there's no way that God's grace is going to intervene in his life. He is set opposed to God's purposes. And yet now he's being put forward as this example, as this exhibit of God's grace. And so this could be really, really helpful for us to consider because I would guess every single person in here has a person, a group of people. It could be somebody in your family or a friend, somebody you've known for a long time, and you think there is no way that person will ever become a Christian. You have those people? Um, those people where you just think, I can never see this happening. There may be some people where there are some relational connections in place. Even their disposition, personality-wise, you think, maybe they're not far from the kingdom. But you have those people where you think, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
What Paul is saying here to us, what God is saying to us through 1 Timothy, is that that person should not be in that category. That we should never put somebody in the category of being beyond the reach of God's grace because Paul is putting himself forward as an example of saying, that's not true. God's grace can intervene in any of these situations. Nobody is beyond the pale, and that's huge. Um, Okay, so application number two. A second danger of forgetting the radical character of the grace of God is that you view yourself as beyond the reach of God's grace. So maybe it's not that you struggle to think about how other people uh, or whether other people might come to know Christ or not, or that they might be forgiven, that they might be redeemed and rescued from their way of life. It could be that you yourself struggle with this in a big way. Um, This passage is meant for you to remember uh, that you can't, uh, that, that you yourself are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul puts himself forward again as this example to say, look at me. Look at what God did in my life as one who was the foremost of sinners, and grace was shown to me. Grace was shown to me. So this could apply personally to you as well. And then lastly, a third danger for getting the radical character of the grace of God is that you cease putting on display Jesus' perfect patience and grace. That's a great way that he says that, uh, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So this is actually meant to be outward facing as well. And I want this to be, I want us to think about this for a second, because this can be incredibly liberating. Because if we are, if we are operating under this, this correct assumption that we live under grace, then what that means is you can come out of hiding and you don't have to, before other people, put on this mask that you don't struggle. It means that you can actually be honest with what we're talking about uh, in terms of our sin. Ryan's example this morning of the pastor's wife who says, uh, I was yelling at my kids this morning. They wouldn't obey, they wouldn't do this, and how liberating that was to that person coming into the church. That's what we're talking about here too. That understanding that you have been embraced by the grace of God, that Jesus has uh, has lived, died, and been raised for you and on your behalf, frees you up to live in a way that that is actually real and authentic before people in a way that you can't otherwise. Um, And so, and that's actually God's intention, that, that, that as we do that, we put on display Jesus's perfect patience with us. Uh, so that, that, can, that can go a long way to, uh, to really helping us think even about ministry and the, the fear of like, oh gosh, if my neighbor saw what I did in my backyard, how I treated my kid and we were getting in to go to school, all that stuff that can be very scary and, you know, uh, and think, well, I've just blown my witness completely. It might be that that is the way in which Jesus shows and puts on display his perfect patience uh, to your neighbor uh, in what he has shown to you. So, um, it has something to do with how we think about ministry as well. A great quote from Jerry Bridges, There are worse days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And then this first section ends with Paul breaking into this doxology, this cause for the praise of the go- for the gospel. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, We've talked some about this already, uh, that, that a huge danger as well of losing sight of the grace of God is that 
the grace of God becomes a primary source of your praise and adoration of Him. And when you drink deeply of that, and you know those moments when you you have those profound instances of sensing the grace of God and of believing what Jesus has done for you, it results in praise. It becomes the way in which you would praise God, and that's exactly what's happening for Paul in verse 17. Um, Any questions, comments, or anything on this this first section? No? Okay, so he moves from this very autobiographical section, uh, and he had, he's broadens it out a little bit in 15 and 16, results in praise in 17, and then he moves on to this charge to Timothy in 18 to 20. And here's what he says. Here's how he describes this, uh, this charge that he's given to Timothy. It's first from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say this explicitly, Uh, But but this is what he's speaking of in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So this call, this charge that's coming to Timothy is not something that just Paul is doing on his own here. He's referencing these prophecies that have been made about him. The Holy Spirit has put Timothy into this role to defend and protect the church against error. So the Holy Spirit's the one who's done this. 1 Timothy 4, 14, which we'll get to uh, later this semester, speaks of what happened, of, of what this calling looked like. Uh, and this is again from, Tim, or from Paul to Timothy. It says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So God has put Timothy into this role. This charge is also then a call to wage war. It says to, that, that you may wage the good warfare... And he enters into this military metaphor. And when Keith and I were talking to him about this series, we talked about how there is language throughout this letter of fighting and defending, guarding. There's kind of this running theme of this military uh, metaphor that's at work. And that, that's, that's the kind of language that Paul wants to use with Timothy. This is how big of a deal this is, that he would, that, that he would wage this good warfare um, and protect the church. Yeah, Max. I have a, a two-part question. Okay. How come that when waging a war, a warfare, the exhausted, tired, or broken, seems to be more of it? Sorry, you say can someone? Yeah, is that possible? Yeah, you mean like experiencing fatigue in, this call, in his own calling? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that's always the case. I mean, I think it may be the case that, that somebody would experience real fatigue um, when they, they are doing something, when they are sin, sinning in some way, when there is, that they're experiencing consequences of disobedience in that way, where you would feel uh, beaten down by your own sin. Is, I mean, in that there are consequences... Um, Oh, okay. I got you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's always the case. Um, yeah, the, the, it... Um, yeah, let me see here. <laughs> Jesus got 
Yeah, Jesus was fatigued. There, there's a way in which, I mean, Paul talks about his own, um, the anxiety he experienced for all the churches. Um, and he goes through all that occurred, and he speaks of his own resume in 2 Corinthians, about all that he did. Um, he, he gave up uh, plenty of rights that he could have, uh, that, that he could have taken advantage of. And so he spent himself in that way, um, for sure. The, that he says in Philippians 3 that he presses on. Um, he, he uses this, uh, he beats his body, he says, because uh, he's going to continue on to press on to make Jesus my own, make Jesus mine, to attain the resurrection because he's made me his own. Um, so there can be, I think there can be a sense in which, yeah, we're exhausted because we're involved in, in the mission of God in really healthy ways. There also could be ways in which you are exhausted because you have subtly and unknowingly dressed up your performance in religious ways such, such that maybe you do feel like I have to do everything and be involved in everything in the church because I can't rest in what Jesus has done for me. And so it becomes a subtle shift in that you're using, you're doing good things. You're doing things actually that you're called to be doing them, but your underlying motives and the uh, maybe degree to which you're doing them becomes something that is unhealthy. And so maybe that's really the, that's probably the distinction um, that we have to be careful of. Uh, yeah, Bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and, and you know, Mark in particular, but the Gospels for sure in general, speak of following the suffering servant and expecting that sort of thing to come to us because we're walking in the steps of a Savior who was crucified. And um, again, in Roman, or, uh, Philippians 3, again, um, we know Him in, in our sufferings. That's the way Paul talks. Yeah, there are other hands that I've... Yeah, thank you. Hmm. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Janet. Sorry, say again. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah, th- there's the... There's resting from our labors in terms of, and remember Darwin had preached this passage in Matthew 11, that yoke that's been taken from us is this loco, yoke of a slavish obedience that would be uh, with the hoped-for hoped end of being accepted. Um, the, the rest that Jesus gives us is one where we are fully accepted apart from what we've done or haven't done. Um, and yet he calls us into this life to follow him. Yeah, Clint, and then we'll move on. Yeah. Yeah, which is still rightly... Uh, described as, as, as good warfare. Yeah. Great thoughts. Um, it's a call to hold to the faith. This is holding faith and a good conscience. He's got to cling to the gospel in the midst of this. 
And then there's this warning against shipwrecking. So he changes metaphors here from this military metaphor to one of this, this ship. And he says, by rejecting this, which is referring here uh, most likely to this good conscience, that they have, these false teachers have rejected this good conscience. And what has uh, come about from that is that they have shipwrecked their own faith. Um, and, and so they, they have shipwrecked their own faith by rejecting this good conscience. But, again, one commentator says, they're also, because they're teachers, they're shipwrecking the faith as well. And that they are proclaiming and teaching something contrary to Jesus and his gospel, which is a problem. And then gives these examples of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Okay, so who were these guys? Uh, Nobody is totally sure. They are referred to a couple times, though. Alexander's mentioned a few times in the pastoral epistles, um, but not much is known about him. If you, uh, he's in that second passage, 2 Timothy 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So this is probably the Alexander referred to. And then Hymenaeus. And again, this is where we see uh, that, that it is a personal letter being written. So there's some things assumed about these particular individuals, like that Timothy knows who they are, and they, we don't need to talk about what exactly they did because everybody knows it. Second um, Timothy 2, "...but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness." Again, fruit of this, or bad fruit, rotten fruit of false teaching. "...and their talk will spread like gangrene." Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So these are the negative examples. And what has Paul done? He says that he has handed them over to Satan. That makes us squirm rightly. Um, so here, here's what... He, I, the, the closest thing to this is 1 Corinthians 5, which I've got on your sheet. Um, so here, here's how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here's what we need to be careful not to miss. There's a restorative purpose in this occurring. Um, as, as uncomfortable as that makes us to talk about handing somebody over to Satan... What he's talking about here is putting them outside the fellowship of the church. This is excommunication rightly administered. And the hope, as sobering as this is, is that they would be put outside this place uh, of, of tasting the riches and the goodness of God. If you think of like Hebrews 6 and all these things that we experience within the fellowship of the people of God. And you are now being put out from that. And the weight of that is intended to bring you to repentance in the end. It's the final step to say, God, please restore this person. We're handing him over to Satan so that he gets a taste of the path that he is walking down right now. And this is so sobering. But as he says, the, the, the intended result is that he would learn not to blaspheme. That somehow this is going to provide conviction for him. And this is, we don't talk much about excommunication. Uh, <laughs> Maybe for obvious reasons, I don't know. Uh, but uh, but that, that there's even a restorative, redemptive purpose in this. They get a taste of the, uh, of the danger that they've put themselves in by opposing the message of the gospel in this way, in such a forthright manner. So, um, 
So this is intended to, uh, to, to give us a feel of and sense of the gravity and the weight, seriousness w- with which Timothy needs to approach these people. Um, so next week, Keith is going to move into uh, the, these first verses of, of chapter 2. Um, so for this week, we're, we'll close there. True Gospels, this grace, gracious message that comes to, uh, comes to sinners, uh, even those that, that are rightly termed the foremost, and we need to not lose sight of it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for your redemptive purposes in our lives. Thank you for the promise to complete what you started in us. Thank you for your promise that we who belong to you, will, uh, who are your true sheep, will hear the voice of the shepherd. Hold us fast to yourself, we pray. Lord Jesus, protect us. Keep us. Um, keep us from swerving. Keep us from making shipwreck of our faith. Lord, we, we stand in complete dependence upon you and throw ourselves at your feet, asking that you would be merciful to us. And at the very same time, that we uh, would cling to, to this grace and that we would live in this grace and that we ourselves, in our own circumstances, would wage the good warfare that you've called us to. Um, we thank you. We praise you. Uh, in the name of our Savior, amen.